You're listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. At the time of this recording, the holidays are just around the corner. I can tell because I don't feel the greatest. Not the flu or cold or the stomach bug or anything else like that. I don't feel the greatest because of all the junk that I've been eating. Seriously, from work celebrations and other things, I feel like food is all around and the spirit is willing, but the flesh is definitely weak this year. Must be all the stress nudging me to grab that extra Reese's or two, okay, or four, or the hugest piece of chocolate cake I've ever eaten at my father-in-law's 70th birthday, and one more the next night that got sent home with me even though I I protested, but not hard enough. So to counter it all, I've been trying to stay active as much as possible. That's part of my regular routine year round, but at these times I try not to skip and I'm anticipating the usual bump in the crowds at the gym with the holidays here, and especially on the back end after the new year, as people join the gym to counter all the unhealthy choices they make by making as they celebrate and spend time with friends and family. Of course, it's no secret that though they may join a gym or initiate a new fitness streak, the follow-through is not always the greatest. And by spring, the gym crowd will be back to its manageable size. In life in general, this trend is kind of a thing. People join with good intentions on the front end, but don't always stick it out. Maybe you signed up to join a club in high school thinking this would be your year to get involved, and you went just long enough to get in the group picture in the yearbook and then never showed up again. Maybe you joined a sport but didn't make it through the season. The commitment, the time, and playing opportunities or lack thereof weren't worth it. Maybe you joined a committee at the parent-teacher conference or open house you went to at the start of the school year saying you are going to get involved in your kids' lives but never did much when the emails went out to get involved. Or joined a ministry at church telling yourself it was time to get involved and you've yet to take that step of faith. We've all joined something and did not make it very far. But in our imperfect fallen nature, even when there are good intentions, we don't always stick with what we have joined. It's really a thing in our culture at all levels. So it's no surprise then that one of the most basic institutions of our society also struggles with retention rates and that those who join don't always stick it out. That institution, it's marriage. Almost 50% of all marriages in the United States will end in divorce or separation. That's one out of every two people who sign up to join a marriage they'll walk away. It's pretty sad. And researchers estimate that 41% of all first marriages end in divorce. But clearly things don't get uh, improved if people decide to join another marriage and remarriage. 60% of second marriages end in divorce and 73% of all third marriages end in divorce. The numbers go up the more the marriages that there are. The United States has the sixth highest divorce rate in the world kind of sad but not surprising when we are a nation with a large number of Christians and churches. It's hard to watch marriages crash and burn around you, or maybe even your own. Another indication of the fallen nature of man and that's life on this side of the garden is not what God intended. And it was an issue in Jesus' day too, something that comes up now in Mark chapter 10. And it's just as relevant today as it was back then, perhaps even more. So let's take a look. Jesus is headed south to Jerusalem, the clock ticking in anticipation of his crucifixion. He's left Galilee, the central headquarters of his ministry, and he won't be back there, at least not until he is in his resurrected state. And we read in Mark 10, verse 1, Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. He's made his way down south to Judea, on the other side of the Jordan, just outside the main area of Judea. And I like this repetition in verse 1. 
and multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. Jesus is coming into the final lapse of his three-year public ministry, and he is staying consistent, staying right in his lane. He doesn't feel the need to come up with something new, approach it from a new angle, reinvent himself, or adapt and adjust to the current social pulse of the nation. Jesus is faithful in what the Father has called him to do until the very end. The crowd gathered again. They knew what to expect with Jesus. They always got a clear, profound, direct, and applicable spiritual meal from him. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. Such a clear, simple focus of teaching the people. This is something I found so refreshing about the ministry of Calvary Chapel. It was such a clear, simple focus. Teach the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. It can get so tempting to feel the need to do what the world does. Change it up. Come up with the next trend. Capitalize on 15 minutes of fame. Adapt to the fleeting interests of the world around us. But Jesus, as he was accustomed, taught them again. Not to say there is no flexibility or creativity or leading of God to take new ventures of faith. Even in my years on the mission field, I saw different churches and ministries led in different ways. They might approach it differently in different seasons of ministry. Maybe at some point there was a wave of coffee shop ministries and cafes that churches used, or starting a radio station to reach the community and cast out a larger net, or a skate park ministry to reach a certain segment of society or something else. But those that were fruitful always came back to the Word of God, making that the emphasis and the focus. I like Paul's perspective in 2 Corinthians 5. It doesn't matter what the Lord called him to do. The foundational purpose was always the same. Paul wrote, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That was the bottom line in any ministry Paul joined and committed to. It always had to serve some purpose in emphasizing man's need to be reconciled with God. Whether it be humanitarian in nature or reaching the felt needs of people or it had more of a social emphasis or whatever Paul found himself doing with churches he was ministering with, it was only worth it if the goal was reaching the, the people who were lost and being reconciled people to God. And I love that subtle message here in verse 1, that again the crowd gathered and Jesus taught as he was accustomed to once again. It's a faithfulness and commitment that we see. Here at this point of Jesus' season ministry, he is staying the course, and it's this faithfulness, I think, that lays a foundation for the next section and the dialogue he's about to have on the subject of divorce. The culture had gotten away from what God had said on the subject, and Jesus will point them back. The religious leaders had drifted from the original intent of the provision and come up with interpretations that suited their needs, but any marriage that honors God and stays together requires faithfulness. It's not a join today and quit tomorrow approach. And Jesus, though unmarried, has the authority to speak on the subject because he is committed and dependable in everything that the Father has entrusted to him. Even down to teaching the people one more time. So the conversation begins, verses 2 through 4. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. The Pharisees are motivated to test him, to catch him in something that can lead to his downfall. And this topic is a pretty good one to do in that society and that day, because marriage is hard. 
any time, any place, any culture. Two people trying to join and unite their lives and establish a oneness. And marriages, even in their day, well, they did not work out. But the Pharisees capitalized on two very different general interpretations that were going around. Jesus asked them what Moses had commanded them, and they all acknowledged that the Old Testament law did have something to say about it. The law was all about clean and unclean, things that went together and things that did not. Holy things could not mix with unholy things. And in Deuteronomy 24, it speaks of divorce. It says it like this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, it then goes on to say that if she remarries, then the new husband dies, that she cannot come back and remarry the first husband. The divorce certificate stands. So Jesus knows they are setting him up to trap him somehow. So he turns it back to, what did Moses command you? And they come back with acknowledging that Moses permitted man to write a certificate of divorce in certain situations. Now, the controversy they tried to trap Jesus in was based on the interpretation of what the Old Testament law meant when it says that if it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. What was this uncleanness? What would be grounds of divorce under the Old Testament law? Two schools of thought behind which the Jews were clearly divided. One group was more conservative in their interpretation, leaning upon the explanation of a rabbi named Shammai. He said that the uncleanness meant sexual immorality and said that was the only valid reason for divorce. If a man married a woman and found out on their wedding night that she had previously been with another man, then they could be divorced. Now, remember a few things. In the Jewish wedding tradition, they went through some phases. After the marriage was arranged, there was the betrothal, at which point they were already bound and committed. But then there was a season when the man went to prepare a home for them. But during this time, they, though they had not come together as a married couple, nor were living together as a married couple, they were legally bound to one another. That's the phase that Mary and Joseph were in when Mary was found conceived of the Holy Spirit. And after this season, when the home was prepared and done, sometimes much later, the groom would come, often unannounced, to take her to be married, consummate the marriage, and begin their actual married life. The conservative view that was promoted by Rabbi Shammai was that the only in the case of an uncleanness was discovered that she had not been pure in waiting for her husband, that the wife could be put away. Of course, in the course of marriage, if she was unfaithful, this would also be seen as the husband finding an uncleanness in her. As the writer of Hebrews points out, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The small problem, though, in the Old Testament law of a spouse committed adultery, the punishment was stoning, being put to death. So a certificate of divorce would not be needed because the spouse would be facing death for their sin, a provision in the land to keep the people and the land pure. As you can see, the first interpretation was very narrow and so not very popular amongst many people of Jesus's day. On the flip side was a very liberal interpretation, quite much more popular. Rabbi Hillel was the main proponent. He said that if the husband found uncleanness, it could mean all manner of things, any sort of indiscretion, even to the point of burning the breakfast, talking to another man, raising her voice so the neighbors could hear, speaking disrespectfully to him or about his family, or even if he saw someone who was prettier than she was, all of these and more being valid grounds for divorce. So in this, we can see the test. Whatever Jesus answers, half the crowd is going to disagree with him. And this is exactly the perfect storm they're hoping for in bringing this question. Apparently, divorce was pretty common amongst Jews and Gentiles, and pretty easy. 
Marriage is a challenge, to say the least. Two people, very different, trying to join one another's lives. Lots of bumps along the way. And divorce, for many, seems a welcomed and viable option at some point along the road. Sort of, I, I gave it my best shot and it didn't work out. Or, she wasn't the right one. Or, he turned out not to be who I thought he was. So many throw the baby out with the bathwater. Call it a wash, count their losses, and move on, or at least try to. After all, as the Pharisees pointed out, Moses permitted divorce, right? So God must be cool with it. Just because there are laws that guide or regulate in our society, even in our modern civil society, it does not mean that those are the best choices or the right choices. Some states in our nation have legalized recreational drug use, hoping to establish some guidelines in who can use it, how it can be used, the punishments for misusing it, and then filtering out that situation in other spheres to keep others safe, hopefully. But we can't use the reasoning, oh, it's legal, so it must be an endorsement. The same with the law in Deuteronomy in chapter 24 about divorce. It gave some guidelines about dealing with the repercussions of a man choosing to divorce. It had to be official. Deuteronomy 24 says, had to give her a certificate of divorce, making it legitimate, had to take the steps to legitimize it. This would set the woman free to be able to show that she was not bound to that husband anymore. An important implication for many women in that society who would be greatly disadvantaged without being able to be part of a household again, and also to show the seriousness of ending that marriage, that the man could never take her back once she was set free and if she remarried, so he better be sure about it. Again, setting guidelines to bring some order in society, as the law was a combination of laws guiding relationship with God, religious practices, and civil law in society, but not a proponent of divorce per se. Not sure if our world and society has gotten all the cliff notes on this subject. I remember being a kid and coming home from school and watching every afternoon. First, there was the dating game. It was a TV show where singles behind a wall had to talk to one another and pick the date that they were going on. And then after that, it was the newlywed game because assumingly some of those couples would make it to the altar. And then after the newlywed game, it was divorce court as you watched couple after couple crash and burn. Um, so that's kind of how the process goes. We kind of expect people will love, people will get married, and then people will fall out of love and get divorced. But that's not what the Bible has to say on the subject. And this seems to be what Jesus refers to in his calculated response to this test, that the Old Testament said something a little bit deeper. Mark 10 verses 5 through 9. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Then Jesus' conclusion, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus wants to make it clear. Marriage was God's design. The Lord is for marriage. Marriage can work out, and divorce does not need to be an option. You can see this even today, even if someone is announced in public as reaching a milestone of an anniversary, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, the crowd always gasps and claps because it's rare to find people who have stayed committed for that long. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. When divorce is on the table, someone in the marriage, if not both, has hardened their heart. That is why Moses was instructed to put those words in there. The law was a tutor, meant to show us our need for a Savior, and to expose our shortcomings, so we would cry out for a Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And in God, any and every marriage should be able to work out. Even in the roughest patches, God has a solution. 
He can use it to refine us, to give us the grace to endure, to use it for his glory. But because of the hardness of people's hearts, there are times often in a marriage where one or both harden their heart, no longer willing to change, grow, repent, compromise, forgive, learn, receive counsel. God officiated the first marriage, brought Adam and Eve to one another. And whether a marriage began in the garden some six millennia ago, or it be the wedding you went to most recently, two starry-eyed fools in love, God can make any marriage successful if he's allowed to. I think King, I think King Solomon put it well in Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. See that picture, all these pairs coming together, two better than one? Well, at the end, a threefold cord. I like that braided rope, three strands wound around one another. It brings strength. And that is a wonderful picture of marriage. When God is in the middle, the buffer, the unifier, the strength between the two, the marriage can endure whatever stresses and strains that may bear upon it when it is a threefold cord, when God is at the center. But what about when God goes missing from one or both hearts of those involved, or when his perspective or counsel or grace or resources or word are no longer factored into the equation or flat out ignored? When one or both have hardened their hearts, no longer responsive to that inner work of our Heavenly Father that needs to do that he needs to do to keep things alive. Well, the writer of Hebrews warns, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That hardness of heart in marriage or any other time our heart is hardening to God, how does it happen? Well, it, it happened through the deceitfulness of sin. We saw one thing, but we perceived it another way, and we believed the lie. That is an impact of sin. It hardens, it deadens, it deceives us, makes the tissue unable to beat, unable to feel, unable to move, even to believe a lie. Hardened hearts, they depart from the Lord. No longer sensitive to his voice, his leading, his correction, his wisdom, his power, his presence, or even his truth. It's a dangerous place to be in any context, but especially in marriage. And at that point, divorce becomes an option for that hardened person, or both, if they're both hardened which is an even more precarious situation for the marriage's survival when both have hardened their hearts. But Jesus reminds them that that was not the original coding for marriage that God wrote into man's experience. Divorce was an afterthought, a result of man's hardness of sin, a result of the fall, which always robs God of his best and of his glory. So God is for marriage, your marriage if you have one, and divorce should not be an option. You can take that off the table right now. Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus' conclusion, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus goes back to the beginning. Interesting that Jesus doesn't really even speak to them about divorce, because rather than focusing on divorce... He says, let's first focus on marriage, to the Lord's original intent with marriage, something we're always wise to do, to join our thinking with, what does the Bible say? 
And when it comes to divorce, stop focusing on divorce. Focus on marriage. What does God want a marriage to look like? Seriously, looking back to what the Bible says in any situation, in any topic, it can save us a lot of time, arguments, and heartache in all areas of life. So go back and say, what did God say about it? And that's what Jesus does in this situation. Jesus does this with marriage. Some things that Jesus points out. First, God made them male and female. Binary. It's a biblical perspective. Two options according to the design of God. There are many reasons someone might struggle with their gender identity or even their attraction to one sex or to the other. But the bottom line is the Bible says God created male and female. And for those seeking a biblical perspective then and working out those other issues has to come under that truth. And God can work through that if given room and a place to do so, even for the person struggling most with this. I know a man who really struggled with his gender identity as a kid, and this was decades ago, long before LGBTQ plus things going on in of recent years, or before gender identity became almost a popular fad as it seems to be as of late. This man as a boy had a painful, real, confusing struggle with wanting to be a girl. But one day, after years of struggle as a preteen, he looked in the mirror and he saw his reflection and said out loud, you're a boy. It was the truth that he realized he had been born a boy. He concluded God made him a boy. He could see it staring back at him, and he started repeating it to himself over and over out loud. You're a boy. You're a boy. You're a boy. Despite his thoughts, despite his confusions, despite his attractions, and he broke and wept and declaring the truth of what he saw, that you are a boy, and it set him free. The simple truth set him free, and he is one of the godliest men I know today and has so much love for others. His own testimony, a powerful tool. Now, this was before gender conversion therapy or choosing your gender was an option being presented to kids or anything like that. Just a kid in a mirror calling it like he saw it. So interesting how the enemy wants to bring such confusing confusion over something that God made simple. Own your truth, define your truth, find your truth, and ask everyone else to play along with it, to affirm it. In the Bible, the enemy is called a deceiver, a liar. And one way to solidify the lie is to repeat the lie over and over again. Perhaps that is why many disagree with letting people choose your pronouns. It's become a thing. Let others know your pronouns. But there's a way in such sticky situations to still be respectful and communicate without needing to play along and embrace altered pronouns. Use the person's name. My pronouns could be Justin and Justin. Just use the person's name when talking about them. You can avoid pronouns. Or use a generic noun. You can replace pronouns with a noun and add a possessive. It's the client's invoice. It's the student's assignment. The customer's order. My neighbor's dog. This is what some are finding effective if their personal conviction is pronouns should not be changed. Respectfully acknowledge the person for who they are, the name that they want to go by, and refer to them in the third person by the role that they have when they're not around. Pronouns become a non-issue, though it may sound a bit odd at first. So yeah, if we are looking at the text, Jesus said God created them male and female. Another thing we see here, Jesus believed in the Genesis account of creation. A little creation in the garden. He refers back to it. In the beginning, this happened. He believes in Adam and Eve, not as some proverbial parents, but literal, the first man and the first woman whom God created. Jesus also points out that marriage was created by God for a man and woman. He defined it according to these verses here. So that is something that those who are working to redefine, reinterpret, or reinforce in any other way, they need to wrestle with it and contend with. Something key Jesus reiterates, the goal of marriage is that two shall become one flesh. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Joining two together to establish a oneness, that's God's goal for marriage. In all areas, oneness, a unique unity. Two intertwine their two lives so much so that two, indiv- two individuals are no longer recognized, but there is such a unity between them, a oneness. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do as two fallen people, because two become one be- requires each partner to sacrifice, to give, to yield, as the Lord joins the couple together. That's what it said in verses 9, therefore what God has joined together. To the single Christians out there, take this to heart. God does the joining when it comes to marriage. Let him pick a spouse for you. Let him dictate the timing of it. Let him guide and direct and lead you in his time. He is the perfect joiner. In colonial times, there was a job called a joiner. Joiners were woodworkers who produced the finished work for buildings. This meant things like doors, shutters, windows, built-in cupboards. They used tools to join together pieces of wood for a finished house that a family could live in. So marriage is a huge step and milestone in life, and Christians should have a holy fear of it and let the Lord do the joining, the building together of it. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. God definitely has some thoughts toward who you should marry and when you should marry and how you should marry, so don't labor in vain in a marriage of your own doing. When it comes to marriage, joining is something God is working to do for the wedding, when the vows are being made, to the honeymoon, when the two become one physically and begin to dwell together and live together and do life together, to the years and years of joining their lives together. And if you look at older couples, you can see, yep, they're joined. They start marrying one another quite well. God working to make each one more like him, ultimately, that's his goal, using the other to complete them, refine them, challenge them, edify them. It's a tool like no other marriage is, but they're no longer two, but one. They cannot and should not be separated. That's why when divorce happens, it is messy. It tears, it breaks, it ruins what God has been joining together for a long time. We live in Oklahoma and they call it Tornado Alley for a reason. We get tornadoes from time to time. Even right now, it's December, and there's tornadoes coming through tonight, potentially, watching the news. And watching the aftermath on the news is always unsettling if one does hit. The news helicopters taking shots from above of a community destroyed. You see houses, buildings, someone's family home, main street of a downtown. It was all built together, piece by piece. The contractors joined each part, nailing each board to the next, covering it in siding, drywall, roofing, a completed house that the family may have dwelt in for years. And when the tornado comes through and there's no neat, clean, orderly way to take it apart because it was joined together, no longer individual pieces of lumber and drywall and bricks and other finishings, and the tornado separates it, it is a mess. Pieces of this and that cleaning still to the other pieces that were ripped away, all those pieces just trying to stay together. There's no clean separation, just a pile of rubble. And so it goes with divorce. God has been working to join together the marriage, and through the hardness of heart when man separates it, it is never clean. It's why the prophet Malachi wrote, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. God's word, he hates it. Because it hurts, it causes pain, it destroys, it ruins all the beautiful things he intended to use the marriage for, it's a pile heap of junk. It's left in a pile of mess. And the two individuals that he loves so much, they're hurt in the process, and then they have to begin to clean up. It's good to remember that God is working to join marriages together. And even when things get uh, comfortable and routine and old and stale even, the Lord is still working to join together to achieve a oneness. 
something good to remember as the years progress. And kids and jobs and responsibilities and commitments can put wedges in, and it can be easy to, quote, just grow apart. It's something a marriage that wants to honor God cannot let happen. Having issues being one in marriage? Get counsel if you need it. Counsel from other couples, from pastors, from professionals. Marriages need a tune-up every now and then. Meet with others rather than withholding oneness in a passive-aggressive resistance. Don't give too much space, but press into being one. 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Dwell with them. Living close to one another is important in joining together. Be careful of man caves, of separate rooms, of separate vacations, of too many guys' nights, girls' nights, of of hobbies that draw you away from one another consistently, or of moving out, of giving each other too much space. Joining together takes being together. Every marriage could use some more glue. Get up today and ask God what he would have you do today to join your marriage a bit more fully, because God is for marriage. Satan always works against things God is for, and a biblical marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, according to Ephesians 5. No wonder Satan attacks a marriage, especially Christian marriages, and it's an all-out assault. It seems like marriages all around us are falling or struggling or on their last tank of gas crawling into the station, but Jesus is fighting for marriages. And Jesus' most powerful weapon is the cross, where sin was paid for the final payment made once and for all, where death was defeated, where resurrection followed, and all the power of the cross is available to those struggling in marriage. The forgiveness, the grace, the victory, the resurrection, even of a dead or a dying marriage. And if we get down to it, every divorce lacks the lordship of Jesus Christ. But every saved marriage can give glory to God. I did a wedding for a couple a number of years ago, Both loved the Lord at the time, were excited to start their lives together. Things got going, they had some kids, and the husband, well, he was a former addict, and he fell back into old habits, trying to hide it for the most part at first. And with that came lying and deception and lack of trust in the marriage. And the couple, they eventually got divorced. So sad to watch things fall apart. Now, fast forward. God is a God of reconciliation, and through a lot of healing and the Lord's intervention, and intervention, a lot of care from the body of Christ, the guidance and support of pastors and the rest of the body of Christ, they just got remarried to one another. I saw the pictures on Facebook, such a joy. Things have come full circle because they both were submitted to Jesus' Lordship once more. And that is all the Lord needs in order to work in saving a marriage or to reconcile one. After Jesus lays out his response to the testing question over divorce, the disciples ask for some follow-up, verses 10 through 12. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus is writing on the tales of his last statement, What God has joined together, let not man separate. In their day and age, as well as in ours, most divorces were not biblical divorces. Man was initiating them based upon whims or emotions or feelings or selfishness. Divorces of convenience, seeking a newer model, a new and improved marriage in version 2.0. So the cycle of divorce and remarriage, sort of a, well, this one isn't working or it's too hard, so I'm going to try another. In such situations, Jesus says those divorcing and remarrying that God saw it as adultery because he had not given up on marriage number one. That was still the marriage to work on in his eyes. The message Jesus sends is kind of clear. Marriage is serious business. 
God highly reveres marriage and is an advocate for it. And the ending of a marriage is not something to be taken lightly. In fact, in Matthew's account of this same scene, the disciples realize this, it seems. They finish up the conversation by saying, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. They got the hint. Might be better to think about your level of commitment before jumping in than taking that step and then backtracking. But if we look around us at our world, our society, our families, our churches even, divorce has not missed us. It's a very real thing, something that many have had to endure and are dealing with the wounds from, which leaves many asking, well, what do we do when a divorce has happened? That was actually the original question Jesus asked earlier. What did Moses say? That Deuteronomy 24 section outlined how to handle it when a certificate of divorce had been given. Now, many would say that in the case of a biblical divorce, that the spouse is free from that marriage and the bond of that marriage. Biblical divorce? If you look at this parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 19, 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So a biblical divorce would be one pursued because of sexual immorality, and the word is porneia, fornication, which can encompass a number of sins in this area, but being unfaithful is the bottom line. So some find freedom if the reason for divorce falls in this area that the other spouse is free to remarry, since the other spouse broke that marriage bond through their indiscretion. If the innocent victim goes on and remarries, that they are not in adultery. Some also add to the discussion that which Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So kind of saying that if you just get divorced for any reason, then you need to stay separated. You don't remarry. And then it goes on, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. And then in verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul says that leaving a marriage, one should remain unmarried. Most would say, unless it was a biblical divorce of sexual immorality. And then in the second part, Paul points and he puts in his two cents. In the case of a believing and unbelieving spouse, if the unbeliever leaves, we'll let them go. So many see abandonment as a second biblical reason for divorce. And when Paul writes that the one left behind is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace, many would see that as giving the green light to be remarried that should the Lord bring someone. Though others would disagree and say, God has called us to peace to mean that you should just move on in life, unmarried, having peace with God that you sought to do your best in the marriage that has ended. The warning many give about remarrying after divorce is that they believe God can always resurrect that marriage, even after divorce. Such would quote verses like Romans 7, verses 1 through 3. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law was, has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Some take a strong stance that the marriage is never over until one of the spouses dies. So remarrying would then be adultery. However, others point out that it does not mention divorce there, and the implication is that someone left the marriage for unbiblical reasons and moved on to marry another. 
And those who lean this direction then say, if it was a biblical divorce, then the innocent party can move on and remarry with a clear conscience. Does your brain hurt yet? It's a mess is what it is. Divorce is a mess. And there is a reason the Lord hates it. Here's where we can wrap it up. There are always other options other than divorce for believers. Jesus can and will step in if we're humble enough to seek him. Now, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Divorce stems from hardness of heart and rejecting the lordship of Jesus, but there is grace, mercy, and forgiveness of the cross that can even be applied there. And where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. But on this topic, we can get lost in the weeds. Look at it so closely, we miss the bigger picture. Well, what about in this situation? What about this circumstances? And God's heart in it all, we miss those things. Jesus switched the conversation from divorce to marriage, what God's plan was for it. That's key to the whole topic. God, make God's view bigger, of marriage bigger, his plan, his design, his rules, and divorce fades in the background. And another thing, as Jesus is pressing on toward Jerusalem, he is more concerned with a bigger divorce. Throughout scripture, God's relationship with his people is equated to a marriage. God with Israel, Jesus with, his, with the church, and it was meant to be a perpetual, continual, unbroken covenant. But alas, verses like Jeremiah 3.20, the Lord said through the prophet, Surely, as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. The nation that Jesus was going to save had divorced the God of Israel, broken their vow, their commitment, run to other lovers, the things of this world, and departed from him, even though he had been faithful all along. And yet Jesus is still faithful to them, loving them unconditionally, even though they have rejected him and will reject him even greater still, this perfect picture of love. The Old Testament law, it was all a picture of Jesus. That Deuteronomy 20, 24 chapter, it was a picture of Jesus. That's the more confusing divorce that we have all been guilty of, departing from a perfectly committed, loving, faithful God when we have no right to do so. We have it so good. How foolish we are to think that we can go anywhere else and find something better. The world, our flesh, our sin, all sorts of spiritual adulteries. I imagine that what was, was, was breaking Jesus' heart most of all in this conversation. The Pharisees and the disciples pondering their own marriages and those, of those, those that they knew firsthand all around them, getting lost in the weeds of man's perspective on divorce. And Jesus was mulling over a greater divorce that had occurred, and that still does to this day. Though those of us called to be faithful, continually running to other things, when God has yet been faithful still. Joining our lives to Jesus is more than signing up for a club or joining a new sport or getting a pass to the gym. It's a commitment for which we are to count the costs and to follow through with, come what may. Jesus loves you. He gave his life for you. His love is unwavering, unending, unmoving. He's committed and will always be there to receive us no matter how far we go. And the door will always be open and the porch light will always be left on during this window of grace in which we stand. He will never divorce us. Until the marriage supper of the Lamb when that door closes, when he unites with his church and those who did not join with him before then will be left outside. And what a wedding it will be for those who are partaking in it. Lord, we praise you for the grace and invitation of having been extended the opportunity to join our lives with you. How much mercy you gave us in that. Wretched, poor, blind, and naked, invited to come by gold refined in the fire. 
Lord, may you sanctify us and make us holy as your bride, joining us ever closer to you. And may all parts of our lives reflect having been joined to you and our marriages above all. Lord, bring godly spouses to those who are seeking them. Protect godly marriages that are struggling to stay the course. Lord, anoint godly husbands and godly wives to fulfill their roles. Lord, bring forgiveness and grace where marriages have ended through the hardness of heart. Lord, show resurrection power to give life where divorce has brought loss or where marriages are dead and dying. And bless marriages and institution, Lord, regardless of what the world tries to make of it. It's in your precious, holy, and mighty name that we pray. In the name of the Bridegroom Jesus, amen.